Hello, everyone. This is the RF Factor podcast, episode number 14, with Pete Gagliardi and me, Ray Gadetti. Hey, folks, tonight we are joined by David Cooper, a former SEAL Team 6 Commander, Master Chief. He's the founder of Verge, a boutique coaching and consulting company where that mission that he's advancing is the blending of his military experience with lessons learned about complex systems. And in the green room, we sort of talked a little bit about that. So I'm looking forward to teasing that out a little bit more. 25 years in the U.S. Navy, the majority of that with the Navy SEALs, uh, decorated, distinguished. Uh, what's incredible is one silver star, six bronze stars. That's pretty impressive. But I think if you ask him, his greatest accomplishments are being a devoted husband and a father. So let's uh, bring him on. And uh, actually, wait, I forgot to say hello to you, Pete. Uh, Pete, oh, how, how are you, you, sir? Yeah, how yeah. you doing, Ray? <laughs> hey, look, this David's the real deal, man. And this guy is a true hero, a true American patriot. Um, th this is uh, going to be a great one today. Um, so look, you think we better remind everybody about what we're about here at the RF Factor, or, or you think they all know it by now? I like when you remind us because I need a constant reminder. So I've been told by a lot of people to include yourself. So go for it. Well, I mean, the RF Factor stands for relentless follow-up. It's the key factor when anyone's trying to implement a new policy or program within an organization. It's often the most difficult one to sustain. You know, it, it involves looking back constantly, you know, like you check your rearview mirror when you're driving on the highway, you know, see what's behind you, see what, what you left behind. Are the programs and the policies that you put in place six months ago, a year ago, five years ago, are they still standing? Are they still functioning as intended? Most importantly, are they producing the type of performance that you anticipated? So what we try to do every day in the RF factor here is to ferret out the key leadership principles from our guests. As you know, we only bring guests on who have been proven leaders in their respective organizations. And we want, it's those experiences that we want to tease out so that we can look at how we might want to positively impact change, learning from them, change for the better, not change for the sake of doing change. Well said, my friend, well said. So without further ado, let's bring on Mr. David Cooper. Hello, sir. Howdy. Good, good evening. Good evening. Howdy. He's got Excalibur there in, in, in the background. You see <laughs> Glowing, it? Glowing, it seems, too, right? That, that's the first thing that I saw. And, uh, you know, knowing his uh, background, I think he probably actually pulled it out of a rock. Right? <laughs> right right yeah. out of the stone. <laughs> that somebody else did and gave it to me. That's the truth, right? And I, I just wow. hang it in my office. Wow. Hey, so so thanks for coming on. Yeah. I know we have a mutual friend, uh, James Sheehan. Yes, we do. And 
from when Pete and I started this, he just kept nagging me. You got to get this guy on. You got to get this guy on. I said, he's not going to talk to us. No, I'm telling you, you got to get this guy on. He's phenomenal. So I appreciate it. Uh, I, I don't know if uh, if uh, Jimmy paid you to come on, but we're <laughs> so glad that you did. Uh, very interested in your story. In particular, what we we were started off talking in the green room uh, about sort of like the natural order of things and 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 looking even in your bio, this notion of, uh, you know, blending your military experience with the complex systems. So maybe we could just start off right there. Uh, yeah. Wow. I mean, um, <clears throat> SEALs work in complex environments. And I, you know, if I, that was evident to me from the time I joined the Navy out of college. I was a, a budding molecular biologist. <laughs> yeah, that's that's uh, I, I don't understand how you go from a budding molecular biologist to a Navy SEAL. I don't. But. And that's a that's a jump, huh? That's a big jump. Quite the jump. Yeah, I was always. Um, I, I was always, uh, uh, you know, a decent athlete, a good student. And uh, my junior year in college, everybody else is trying to decide what they're going to do. Are they going to go to med school? Are they going to go to graduate school? You know, I used to smile and nod whenever those after college life conversations came up. But in the back of my mind, there was that alarm bell going off. So you're kind of screaming, run. You know, I wanted to, <laughs> all I'd ever known of the world was Eastern Pennsylvania, you know, and I wanted to see if I couldn't combine those you know, there's uh, the, the kind of mental world, the intellectual world with the physical world. And uh, I had no place, no idea where I would do that, how that would be. Um, I figured it would just emerge an answer out of the clouds. And lo and behold, I took a history course and elected my junior year. It was um, the history of the Vietnam War. And the professor, you know, he's racing through the war. He just mentioned the date, January 8th, 1962. And that was the day Kennedy signed into existence the United States Navy SEALs. And uh, you know, I, I paused right there and I thought, you know, what the heck is a Navy SEAL? I'd never heard of one. It's 1987. Right. We didn't have a plethora of book writers back then uh, coming from the SEAL teams. But And what little information I could find out was intriguing. You know, it was a bunch of guys working in small teams all over the world, jumping out of airplanes at 20-some thousand feet, climbing mountains, you know, braving the <laughs> North Sea like Vikings. And I, as soon as I, you know, read that, I thought, hey, here's a group of guys that are trying to you know, suck the marrow out of life. Uh, they were going for it, you know? <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And I wanted to do that too. And I, you know, my intention was just a couple of years. I get the wanderlust out of my system. I told my buddies, Hey, after we graduate, I go off, I do this thing uh, for a little while. Then I come back, I grow up, I, I go on to graduate school or med school, whatever the case might be. And uh, I said that in 1987, a couple of years turned into 15 years. Um, you know, 2001 was really the first time I kind of came up to take a breath, you know, uh, no pun intended, or maybe the pun is intended, maybe seal. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, you know, at that point, I'd, I concluded that I'd accomplished everything I'd set out to do. And then some, I'd been around the world a couple of times. I learned a lot about myself and the world, not all of it good, as you can imagine. Uh, I'd met the woman who was to become my wife. So she was, you know, she was eager for me to grow up. Uh, so I think she still is. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, so the plan was I, I was going to go to med school in the Navy's dime. And then, uh, you know, the uh, we know we all know what happened at the end of, of the summer. Right. The towers went down. And really, for me and my teammates, there was no looking back. And then we spent the next decade plus in one war zone or another. Wow. 
I finally retired at the end of 2012. And at, at that point, I was like, you know, itching to get back into school. I didn't know what that would look like. But I, I uh, wound up at Oxford, going back and forth between Oxford and HEC Paris. And this notion of complexity intrigued me. You know, what is, you know, what is a complex system or a complex adaptive system? We can go everywhere from the planets to the climate to, the, uh, to your brain, your body, uh, organizations, teams. They're all complex systems. Um, how do they change, adapt, learn, and grow? How do you, how do you kind of mold and shape these things? And there's a, a lot of you know deep science involved in that, but there's also a lot of social psychology and stuff like that. And uh, as I said, it intrigued me. I started running down that road in 2016, and I have been on it ever since. You know, and it's really about how do you take, uh, let's just say, a team. You know, what makes a team tick, or what makes a team not tick so well? Uh, what are the conditions? How do we set them? And again, how can we you know, uh, you know, manage some of these things. Control is not a really good word with human beings, but how do we manage some of these complexities and steer that team in the direction we want to go? As SEALs, we tended to, to do that pretty well. We had an environment that, you know, forced us to learn, forced us to be adaptive. If, you know, frankly, if you didn't, you ran the risk of dying. So, uh, and forced us to listen to each other. And really, I would say one of our secrets there was forced us to harness the D word, diversity. And, you know, people say, well, I don't see much diversity in a group of guys, right? But there's a great deal of diversity in, a, you know, in, in eight SEALs. We have uh, different uh, strengths, different skills that we bring to the table. You know, everybody has shared some shared skills, but, you know, there are guys who specialize snipers, breachers, climbers, the sky gods who are your parachute experts and stuff like that. Uh, so we bring all these functional skills together. We, we come from different cultures. We have different types of education and different educational backgrounds. Um, and we see the world a little bit differently, that kind of cognitive diversity. And we tend to combine those things. Uh, we embrace the kind of conflict that comes with it. There is a great deal of conflict that comes with that kind of diversity. But we, we embrace both the, the diversity and the conflict. And we come up with some pretty novel solutions to some tough problems, be they the Bin Ladens of the world or... Uh, you know, Captain Phillips, J Jessica Buchanan, hostage rescue right. missions and stuff like that. So, but yeah, the, the two kind of go together hand in hand. So it was easy to take those experiences and the stories that go with that and then, and then kind of combine that with some of the science of complex systems and help people, you know, change and learn and grow. And is that what you're doing with Verge now, right? You're actually taking those stories and going out and uh, educating people? Yeah, I'd say I function at, you know, half the time as a coach, you know, and I like that. You get to develop some relationships. I don't really, you know, as a coach, I don't provide answers. Uh, it's, it's, it's facilitating groups or teams to come up with the answers themselves, to experiment, to learn from those experiments, the feedback, kind of like you're relentless follow-up. It's relentless feedback and not being afraid of that feedback and learning from it. Uh, and then the other half of the time is a consultant where I would go in and do, uh, you know, what, what consultants do. I, 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 you know, give a bunch of knowledge, I drop the mic and I walk away. Um, was, so I much prefer the coaching relationships. As I say all the time, I get to meet new and interesting people and I don't have to put them in a detention facility or worse. So, <laughs> so, so D David, I, on keeping with this coach uh, 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 theme here, I noticed in, in your resume that you would um, you had been known um, throughout your command as setting the tone for the command, and that um, it, you talked about your active involvement in in the uh, professional and personal development of the officers and enlisted 
uh, men. Um, you talked about different subjects that 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 diverse subjects that you would touch upon, such as leadership, uh, uh, creating high lead, high performing teams, ethics, uh, special operations uh, tactics, techniques. But were, were there any common denominators that that you saw in 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 coaching the diverse groups of people that that you said you know? Every time I sit down and and and, and I'm coaching somebody, this is always a, an area, a base that I have to tag. That's a great question. I would say first, I I did those things because I learned those things. You know, if you're gonna, you know, we don't see leadership as taking charge so much as we see it as taking part, and I think that's a a big piece of what leadership means inside of the SEAL team. So it's very much a shared activity or a shared behavior. But I will tell you that, you know, if, if you want to draw some distinctions, the, you know, my favorite coaches, if you will, were those who um, kind of had their focus on the shared mission, not kind of, but had their focus on the shared mission. They weren't interested in status. They weren't interested in their rank. They weren't interested in anything like that. Um, and you can tell when you get with guys like that, and there's a plethora of them uh, in the SEAL teams that the this was going to be an, an you know an, an an interesting endeavor. It was going to be fun because all they wanted to do was solve the problem, whatever that problem was, uh, and and not worry about uh, their rank or anything else. They were certainly just like you would see in in, in any other kind of organization that's hierarchical like that. There were people uh, who tended to focus on themselves, on their status. Um, you know, they, they were ultimately became bureaucrats. Um, I suppose there's a need for them. I'm not convinced. But I, I really liked working with the guys who were focused on the mission and not just the guys, you know, we have, there's the, of the you know, the, and we say the development group, everybody else calls it SEAL Team 6, but uh, you know, there's a couple thousand people there that support the operational SEALs, only a couple hundred of those guys. So it's, it's everybody kind of coming together to solve some of these problems and to, to put us in a position of advantage. And it's cool when people are focused on the mission. I love seeing that. So how does someone that once worked as a, a busboy at a Pennsylvania Dutch restaurant, how does that person at that point in their life, do they even know they want to go into something that's much more complex? Wow, you're talking about emergence, right? We don't know what that path is. None of us do, right? We can't, uh, you know this, everybody knows this. If, you, if, you, if the three of us could uh, predict the future, we would be sitting on Wall Street right now, not in front of our screens. And even on Wall Street, they can't predict the future. Um, ultimately, doors open, right? As you interact with people, doors open, and you decide whether you're going to walk through that door or not. And for me, a lot of these different doors opened, and I just went walking through them. I still do that to this day. Uh, you know, if the door opens, I walk through it. In my past life as a SEAL, well, I ran through the door with a gun in my hands. Uh, <laughs> if the feedback was was good, I continued on. If the feedback was a wall of bullets, I turned around and went the other way, kind of thing. But yeah, you're you. Uh, none of those things are explicable in the moment. As we turn around and look back, some of the patterns might be um, available to us, or we might see them there. But at the time I had nobody in my family was associated with the military, not since world war II. my grandfather, I had some, uh, uh, guys on my grandfather's side. I, they died before I was a bus boy at a Pennsylvania Dutch restaurant. So I didn't really know. I knew the stories, but we weren't <laughs> military folks. My, my parents were, uh, raging flower children. Um, 
if anything, they were anti-military and they weren't too impressed. You know, when I enlisted in the military after college, it wasn't until about a year or two later that my dad finally said, okay, I think this is pretty cool. Um, but as I said, yeah, no way you can necessarily know that you walk through the doors and, uh, and you, and you keep going if you like it. And if you don't, you turn around, you know, athletics, as I said, that combination of being a good student and a good athlete kind of gave me a hankering, uh, a little bit of philosophy thrown in there from a roommate in college, you know, who said, you know, you know, with particularly the Eastern philosophies that that melding of the of the physical and the mental. Yeah, some of that was at play. It was intriguing to me. But again, the doors opened. I walked through them and I just continued down that path. It sounds like, and you know, using another uh, analogy here, your azimuth was always pointing to true north, right? And uh, some folks, the opportunities might be there, but they go off uh, trail there. They, they don't know how to follow their, their compass and they don't know how to make those kind of decisions. Um, can you speak to that? Like, you know, throughout when these doors were opening, uh, when these uh, when the lights were turning green, how did you know to go? Where other folks uh, they hesitate and they don't they don't take the risk. They don't move into they don't move outside their comfort zone, and and because of such, they never grow. Right. Some of that's genetic. If you're talking about individuals, some of that is learned uh, as groups. You know, we um, you know I kind of grew up in a household where. Uh, you know, I was, I was a blue collar kid, grew up on a kind of a small farm. We lived on my aunt's bigger farm, but we owned a portion of it, right? We had horses and stuff like that. And uh, the work was hard at times. Uh, wrestling practice was always hard. The SEALs tend to recruit wrestlers and water polo players and stuff like that. So you get used to getting beat up. There's a great deal of, uh, you know, humility that comes from that. Um, and... In the end, you know, I would say some of the most successful SEALs I know were unafraid of failing, right? Uh, we know it's going to happen. We don't want to be cavalier about it. That happens. We see that in individuals who can you know, take a hit and get back up and keep on coming again. We call that resilience where they can reinvent themselves. A change is part of that reinvention process. But ultimately, they're not afra- afraid of failure. There's a mindset there that it's not surprise or failure. Uh, that they kind of prepare for that it's they kind of know that's going to happen anyway and and they're and they're they're ready for it and they kind of welcome it and uh, I would say it, it's uh, seals do that in general pretty well um, we accept the fact that we're not always going to succeed we will experiment 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 we will learn from that feedback that we get most of those experiments we would like to do in kind of, kind of safe training environment but uh, you know, we learn from those things. We don't beat each other up when we make mistakes. We support each other. So, you know, I would say a number of those attributes, if you will, were, were kind of resident in my early life as well. I was not necessarily afraid of failing. I, I, as I said, I'd, as a wrestler, I'd gotten my ass kicked all over the East Coast. So uh, it was no different when I went into the SEAL teams uh, and really no different as we progressed as SEALs this ability to learn from feedback, to recognize that we're not always going to be successful, but the learning is the chief outcome that we're looking for. The failure, yeah, it's going to happen, but can we learn from it and can we keep going? As you get into SEAL teams, though, much, you know, even through BUDS or SEAL training, that's difficult to do. And I would suggest, you know, I don't suggest, I know this, that uh, it's hard to make it through if you're on your own. There's always going to be those moments where you think, okay, I've, I've 
bitten off more than I can chew. This isn't really worth it. This isn't what I want to do. Uh, but when you are, you know, you with a core group of guys and you establish these really strong relationships at that moment, your weakest is when those guys are lifting you up. And, uh, uh, again, that practice continues in the SEAL teams as well. So there's a lot of, you know, none of this stuff that we do on our own. And that's why, as, as I said, leadership is very much a shared responsibility inside of an operational SEAL team. Uh, that support that you get from your teammates is what keeps you going. And ultimately, when you talk about courage and stuff like that, it's not necessarily something that comes from within inside. That's part of it. But it's also something we draw from our teammates, you know. And uh, um, when you have those feelings and those are completely normal that, hey, this is too much and I want to turn around and go the other way. That's when there's a hand on your shoulder saying, hey, you can do this. You know, and I was fortunate enough. You have to uh, and not all of it is, hey, we're 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 not supermen um but a lot of it is the it's it's you know the the good fortune of having a good group of people around you to lift you up and help you and 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 sometimes take you through that door uh if you need it you know if that makes sense sure does well, so so when you were when you were sitting in that cold surf there in coronado uh, you were probably sucking in more seawater than bone marrow, right? <laughs> yeah. The marrow of life. Yeah. And you probably said, what the heck am I doing here? Yeah, I would say, you know, at least there was one time, as I recollect, probably more than that. But there was one time when I, when I thought, hey, this is, this is, I'm going to get rolled back. I thought my foot was broken. And my roommate at the time said, hey, you can do this. And uh, we only had another 24 or 36 hours to go in, in hell week. And, uh, you know, and, and it was that, that support this, you know, a guy saying, Hey, you can do this, uh, that, that helped get me over that hump and, and keep going, you know, you know, Pat, something else I, I, I read that, that you wrote and it was back to your experience as a bus boy. And I, 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 I pick on that because I, I think it, it, when we think of Navy SEALs, we think of, 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 of a, the epitome. We, we think of something that most people can't ever reach. But when we think about a busboy, we think just about everybody that wants to can reach that level, right? But what you said about that was something very unique, I thought. You, you said that um, it, it seemed menial, but you had to make it fun. But most importantly, you said you had to lend it meaning. Right. And I and I and I think that that's profound in the sense that when with covid. And we looked at the people that got us all through covid. They they, they weren't Navy SEAL. People that worked in grocery stores, in restaurants, food delivery services. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that we learned a lesson that that's what lent meaning to those jobs. You do. I think it's, you know, the, the notion of meaning is fascinating as a lady out there by the name of Katie Bailey. She's at uh, King's college in London, does a lot of research on this is you know, fascinating. Uh, some of, some of her findings, but without even digging into the research, we kind of intuitively understand that if you, if you're not finding meaning or if you're not finding purpose, or you can't lend that to what you're doing, um, it's just going to, you know, instead of sucking the marrow out of life, life's going to suck the marrow out of you. Obviously there, you know, that, that turns into, you know, burnout and a whole host of things that people suffer from depression and worse. Um, 
But yeah, I think that was something early on that, uh, again, I grew up with that, with a family that uh, was always talking about meaning and deriving meaning from things. And, uh, you know, there's notions of gratitude and stuff like that in there. And, uh, and some of the best times I had and some of the most, you know, raucous kind of laughter I had were in some of our darkest moments. We were ready to, you know, at one point, this is during the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, we were ready to crash in a helicopter, right? Uh, the helicopter was going down. Uh, it, you know, it was it. That was the end, right? And, uh, you know, one of the guys said it was complete silence other than the one engine that was still working on the helicopter. Uh, as we were plummeting to our death, one of the guys said, at least we're not going to have to clean our weapons tonight. You know, nobody likes cleaning their weapons. We were going to be dead, so we're going to have to clean them <laughs> anyway. You know, and everybody just broke out laughing. You know, good fortune. Pilot just came from a, an emergency water landing rescue school where he was an instructor and he put that helicopter down and, and didn't let it flip over and all that stuff. And we, you know, we were saved and we're alive. But, uh, you know, there's, you know. Uh, there's always an opportunity to, to find meaning again, to go back to Katie Bailey, some of the work she has done. She's, you know, discovered that some of those people out there, um, janitors in New York city, where you would think, well, well, that's kind of a dead end, meaningless job. Those are guys that tend to derive some of the end girls that tend to derive some of the most meaning from their jobs. Why? Because they see the effects they have on people. They, they are able to look ahead and say, you know what, we're keeping this city as clean as we possibly can for people to enjoy it. And from that, they derive a great deal of meaning and as well they should. Um, you know, and I, I think that's, that's your answer right and I, there. And I thought that was profound, yeah. Yeah. That, that statement that you made about yeah. that. That's, hey, Dave, can I, can I ask you about uh, small teams or just teams in general? Uh, you sort of touched on it before. Um, every organization has it, right? You have folks that, you know, collaboration seems easy uh, and other folks, it, it's a little bit more difficult. What, what I found is in, in my own experiences and in particular with sharing information, uh, but I think you can relate that to small teams. I, I once said, and um and if, after I said it, I, I was like shocked that I did. I, I said that collaboration needs to be compelled on the front end because I felt that it just didn't come natural. It wasn't intuitive to folks. But once they realized the benefit, the collaboration, and, and to your point that there's going to be someone next to you, that uh, whether they're going to help you in terms of, in your case, building you up, uh, maybe even being a crutch physically when you thought you broke your your foot but also help you in terms of uh, leveraging each other's information. I, I still stand by that at, at first because I don't think collaboration is taught, uh, but, I, but I believe once it is, then people recognize the value of it and it becomes that much easier. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's a great insight. I think, you know, we in the, in the complex systems world would refer to that as uh, an initial condition, right? Let's say you're new to a team and you're, uh, a little bit hesitant to speak up. Well, it's in, here it's incumbent and here's where, you know, not just formal leadership, but influential informal leaders kind of set the tone. This is this, this, is this uh, tone setting thing where they will, they will quickly be seen uh, talking about their vulnerabilities, talking about the mistakes that they made, making fun of themselves, being humble, right? Even though they are very skilled people. Uh, and when you start to see that, then you start to say, hey, this is a place where I can take a risk. And this is a place where I can 
voice my opinion and this is a place where I can give ideas and this is a place where I can act with other people and I'm not going to be judged if I don't uh, live up to my own expectations of perfection and stuff like that. And over time, um, you know, that new person gets socialized into this culture, as you say, that, that where that cooperation in, uh, in particular was kind of resident there before this person showed up. And as you know, this is one of, one of the things I learned in the SEAL teams, you know, it's, one of, it's a tradition that I carried on. The, the guys that I looked up to were just like the people I described there, very skilled, yet at the same time, incredibly humble, not afraid about talking about their mistakes, their shortcomings, their concerns, and all of that stuff. And it just, that sets a tone that's, again, suggests to the, particularly the new people coming in that, hey, it's actually okay here to cooperate. And when we're successful, again, where, where you have groups of people that are not focused on rank or social status and stuff like that, and the success is shared, ownership is shared, failure is shared, um, then you're going to find that this kind of pattern of, of cooperation becomes a positive feedback loop. More cooperation leads to more cooperation leads to more cooperation. Then cool things can happen. Unfortunately, it's not hard to shut that down, right? And, and we know that if you, if you um, are in a team where, you know, let's just say relationships aren't based on things like mutual respect, right? Inside of hierarchical organizations, the military does this all the time. SEAL teams are a little bit removed from that, particularly dev group, um, where, you know, it's, the respect isn't mutual. It's supposed to be given to the person above you or several layers above you. But inside of those good teams, that respect is, is mutual. The, 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 the active showing of care and concern is mutual, right? Inside of those kinds of organizations, uh, that's where you're going to see this, this kind of positive feedback loop where cooperation equals more cooperation equals more cooperation equals cool things. Uh, and as I said, though, again, it's, you know, one toxic person in the mix, uh, easy to shut this stuff down. And it's hard to get it going again, but not impossible. You know, it, it takes all this stuff takes energy. And a lot of times we revert again to complex systems world. All complex systems revert to their lowest energy state. Right. For humans, a lot of times that's complacency or it's the status quo. I'm just going to you know, come in. I don't want the ship to be rocked. I don't want anything to move. I don't like change. I like stability. And there's, we all like stability. Uh, but we don't recognize in that inside of that stability, sometimes we're caught in a rut, right? The status quo rut or the complacency rut. And we need a little bit of shaking up to get out of that. But um, it takes energy to stay, you know, if we think of that as a bowl and here we are, this pebble down here at the bottom of the bowl, if you want to be up here where things are really happen, takes a lot of energy coming from everybody. That's commitment. And uh, we can do all kinds of things to rob people of that commitment. We can take advantage of them. We can, uh, you know, uh, override their better judgment. We can, you know, uh, it's has happened to, to nurses and doctors during the COVID thing. We, you know, particularly at my wife's hospital, you know, they didn't have enough uh, N95 masks. So they're asking people to go into COVID positive rooms with just a surgical mask. They had no idea what was going to happen, but that that's tough on people. Uh, and if you're in a constant environment like that, it, again, that takes the energy out of the system and you go down to this bottom here of, of complacency and status quo. So SEAL teams were very good at keeping your energy level up there. You got a great return on that investment. If you invested energy, that energy was going to come right back to you and good teams turn that energy into performance. And I think uh, a SEAL team uh, was just good at doing that. You know, it, you got a slap on the back every time. It wasn't every six months that you said, you know, somebody sat you down for some kind of performance review, right? You did something good. People were patting you on the back immediately for that. 
by the same token, if you did something that was a little bit, you know, uh, not so good, you got that feedback as well. Again, that relentless feedback. So again, a lot of energy up there, uh, high meaning, um, high purpose teams. And, and that's, that helps that coordination piece. It's key. I mean, it's, it's vital. I, I completely get now yeah. this notion of setting the tone. And it, what it sounds like, it takes more than one person to set the tone. It, it requires constant uh, contribution by, by all teammates to keep that tone set where it's at. It really does. And you're talking about, you know, uh, you know, every team has not necessarily toxic people, but sometimes they're a, there'll be a freeloader inside a team. Team's doing well. And you got one person that says, well, basically, I can kick back here and coast. You know, quite often, if you don't give that person the feedback, right, you're going to keep seeing that behavior over and over and over again. And that leads to this kind of negative spiral or can lead to that kind of negative spiral. Here's where that feedback piece comes in. Because I said quite often that that person who is kind of kicking back and falling to that lowest energy state is completely unaware of it. So if you just put up, you know, as what happened to us in a SEAL team, somebody comes up and puts a hand on your shoulder or an arm around you and says, hey, brother, what's up? Uh, you know, that kind of feedback you know, wakes you up to the fact that hey, you might have been coasting for a little while. And if you don't get after those things, as I said, you see that behavior over and over and over again. And what does that ultimately do? Robs that team of energy, uh, decreases that level of coordination and cooperation and all those cool things that go on inside of a team or can anyway. Right. So it takes that team. It doesn't take the necessarily the formal leader being the guy to put his hand around your shoulder. It's teammates. You know, we we look at that as co-creation. It's not one person again taking charge. It's a bunch of guys coming together uh, in each of us, you know, uh, 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 taking ownership of that problem, even if that problem is the relationships that are so important inside that team. So key. Since we're on the subject of, of sensitivities here. Can you talk about what you consider your biggest failure? Oof. Well, other, you know, getting it, a teammate it, shot is a pretty big failure. I will, you know, I, 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 I did that. I bowed to rank early in, uh, early in the war in Afghanistan, did something that I knew was foolish. Um, and a teammate, I, I didn't get shot. That's how it happens, right? I make the mistake, somebody else gets shot. Again, that's why those relationships are so important. But I bowed to rank and got a teammate shot. Uh, thankfully it, it was, it was through his calf and he was, he was fine and he, you know, he lived, <laughs> um, but still that's, you know, you know, when you make a mistake and, and that mistake doesn't affect you, it affects your teammate. Um, it, that's a big failure. And that's something I definitely learned from. Uh, I can tell you, I was, uh, not keen on bowing to rank after that, uh, never was, uh, you know, in the, you know, in the, in the culture code, I make a joke of it, the book, the culture code, right. You know, as I got more senior, people wanted to call me by my rank. And I said, Hey, my name is Dave. My name is Cooper. My name is expletive face. You know, you'd call me either one, but, uh, don't call me by my rank. Um, so that, you know, uh, we learn from those failures, you know, hopefully the failures aren't so tragic that you can't overcome them. In that case, it was not, but that, that's a big failure. But there are other things, you know, things that you, you, you have a great idea as a formal leader inside of an organization. And then the very next thing to do is you force it on everybody else. You know, in hindsight, that's, you know, we tried to um, love Marines. We tried to force Marines into the assault squadrons at, at Dev Group. And uh, that just was not something that 
the, the SEALs were, were the operators were going to take. They were never consulted. Uh, we tried to force it on them and they resisted it as well they should. Um, and you learn from that. And we should have said, hey, you know, th- that came about because the Marines were standing up MARSOC, their own special operations command. We used, we had Marines at Deb Group, lots of them supporting us. There was the concern that the MARSOC was going to take those Marines away. How do we keep the Marines there? We, we said to MARSOC, well, how about we bring some of your operators over here? We'll put them through our selection course. If they make it through, they join an assault squadron for a couple of years. Uh, Delta Force had done this. Um, it sounds like a great idea until you try and force it on people and then it fails. And, and any number of times we forget that active participation is key in getting people to accept change. And when you force things on people, whatever the case might be, whether you're forcing Marines, uh, I tried to force guys at one, one time to, uh, you know, do the, the morning fight clubs, you know. Uh, guys like me love the fight club, go down jujitsu, Muay Thai, all that stuff. Well, not everybody's into that. And if you force that on them, they're simply going to dig in their heels uh, and not buy into it. So I was a number of times I did stuff like that. And uh, I can use those stories today to say to people, hey, you know, here's what happened to me when I tried to force change. Um, are you trying to force change? And how can we go about inviting people into it? And that that might not get you over the hurdle to success, but it's going to get you a lot farther down the road of being successful, you know? So, yeah, I got lots of failures. Bring my wife on the show. She'll tell you about a lot more, I suppose. <laughs> but what? And look, I think what you're touching on, too, is uh, there, there seems to be a confusion. I shouldn't say seems to be. I think there's uh, a habit of folks to confuse rank with uh, leadership. Yeah. And... And I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. It's not. Bottom line, it, it isn't. It has almost nothing to do. Uh, formal authority is a function of leadership. Uh, it's a tiny little aspect of it. But if that's all you have to rely on, I can tell you that you are not a, a, a leader in my book or anybody else's book any, either. Uh, you know, inside of an operational SEAL team, it's a deference to expertise, knowledge, skill, and experience. And we would also defer to character as well, right? Those guys who are, you know, have all the knowledge, skill, and experience, but are also humble about it. Uh, I think that's, that's key. But that notion of rank, you know, uh, the bin Laden raid, it was the, you know, the senior military commander forced those helicopters on us, right? Even when I said, hey, with all due respect, I wouldn't use these helicopters. You know, he wanted me fired for voicing my opinion. We did, that just <laughs> never happens inside of an operational SEAL team. You know, you, you know, uh, the, the youngest guy, if he has a concern, we would expect him to voice his opinion and his concerns, you know. Uh, and so, you know, guys who have that formal rank when they're successful, uh, like to say, Hey, that was because of me, but when they fail, man, they're quick to point the finger elsewhere. Uh, you know, and, and we saw that happen any number of times inside of any, any government organization with few exceptions, there is this, um, Remember, when I, you know, I said there's that those guys that focus on the shared task and there's guys who focus on their individual careers and stuff like that. The a primacy of the individual, as I refer to it today, uh, there's a good bit of that inside of formal hierarchies or what we call dominance hierarchies that are exploitation and status oriented. And it's all about I outrank you, therefore I'm right. I actually had my career at the, as a, a young SEAL at SEAL Team 2, I had my executive officer say to me, hey, I'm an 04 and you're an E5, therefore I'm right and you're wrong. If you got wow. to say stuff like, man, that's just, that's weak, you know. Um, and I, you know, if, if I ever said anything like that in a SEAL Team, I would expect 
the guys to come up to me. I never did, but I would expect the guys to come up to me and say, hey, that's not who we are, man. What's up? You know, there's the arm around your shoulder uh, and you're going to get a, a, you know, a quiet talking to, uh, you know. And anyway, that, yeah, rank is not leadership and we shouldn't confuse it as such. Unfortunately, we do because it's associated with status. You're, I think you're the first person I ever met who listed anything by Thoreau as one of their <laughs> most favorite books. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've got to admit, when, when I was in, in college, yeah. I was a, a Thoreauvian, right? And um, I, I, I could never understand how come my English teacher would give me a bad grade for run-on sentences when that's all Thoreau could write a whole paragraph and it would be one single sentence. Well, that's I like it, it. Right? <laughs> right? You can't start a sentence with right. it, but when Hemingway does it, it's art, right? So, uh, yeah. Exactly, and and, right, and and, right. But Thoreau, you, you, go a whole, you go like 10 lines before you find a period. Exactly. Right, so tell me why, why you listed Thoreau as one of your favorite business books. I think, uh, I think for obvious reasons, you know, here's a guy that uh, writes about so many things that that struck a young man and me at the time when I when I read Thoreau, and I've been, you know, I keep it that little tiny handbook close by at all times, right? Uh, It just strikes you as uh, this is real man. And uh, he's on to something here. And I'd like to experience some of these things as well. Might not be willing to live in a cabin uh, on Walden there for a couple of years, but there's still adventure out there. And it's, you know, ultimately I saw Thoreau as wildly adventurous. And, uh, and I, you know, again, gets back to something Ray said there was, you have some people that, that, um, you know, they're, they're apprehensive about pursuing that adventure and walking through those doors. Whereas I was eager to go do that. Um, and, and, and his writing struck a chord and, uh, you know, it went with everybody fine, pick it up, read a couple pages. If you like it, keep reading, you know, and, and that's what I did, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Simple life. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and, and sitting here listening to you, Dave, it's, it's hard not to, uh, get the impression of the warrior scholar. And I think you're the epitome of that. Um, <laughs> I am the epitome of nothing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but and, and I bring that up because I think that I think we need more of that. Um, and and now more than ever, we see that those folks are percolating. But yeah. how do we create those more of those warrior scholars? And and not just in the military, but certainly in law enforcement and other public safety positions as well. That is a great question. And creating them is might be, uh, um, you know, a bridge too far, but you set the conditions where um, those people emerge, right? And, um, and whatever that looks like, you know, inside of the uh, uh, SEAL teams, again, this is the, the rich get richer, uh, poor get poor kind of scenario, but a dev group at Delta Force, we have all the money in the world to go do some of the, you know, to entertain any notion you might have. You know, I, you know, I, I loved climbing. Uh, I went all over the world climbing. I loved the mixed martial arts. I went all over the world training with some of the best uh, martial artists in the world. Um, 
you know, I left Hori and Gracie uh, in 2000 and after training with him for a number of weeks and left his place. And I said, you know, you're the nicest man I've ever met that can kick my ass. And he said, uh, <laughs> you know, the, he said, the lion can be friends with all the animals in the jungle, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking, I'm like, in the back of my mind is that former molecular biologist. I'm like, yeah, the lion doesn't live in the jungle. The tiger does. But I understand what you're saying here. And that is, you know, if you're that capable, you can be humble. So we had the opportunity to go do all these things to exercise all those passions. Um, and I don't know that we, we uh, um, enable others to do that, right? We tell them what they should know, uh, tell them what they should do. There's not a lot of choice involved in that. And again, inside of that, inside of SEAL Team 6, we had a lot of choice to pursue those things. Uh, um, and I don't necessarily know that you, you need, everybody needs to be a warrior scholar. That's the, that's the diversity piece. Again, uh, you need people who are uh, cold, hard technicians. I can sit here and talk about Thoreau and all that good stuff. I cannot, for the life of me, uh, put a power tool in my hands or, or fix anything mechanical. It's just not going to work. You know, I'm not your man. Uh, so we need all these different kinds of people coming together. But again, that gets back to giving people the opportunity, good word, pursue uh, some of their passions. And I, I don't know that we do that as well as we could. One thing we talk about a lot is uh, law enforcement. And uh, today, um, and we know that law enforcement is just chock full of really good people. And you mentioned something in your writings that sometimes even really good people can be biased. Um, talk about that a second. and. You had a, a personal experience with that. Well, yeah, all of us are, are biased. I think the really good people might be aware of their biases, right? And the, what the most common bias out there is a confirmation bias, right? If you, if you believe the earth is flat, you can go find information that, that supports your belief. Um, you know, again, as an operational seal, he, you know, we... We didn't necessarily have this saying. I use it now. It's you know kind of the height of resilient thinking. That is this notion that feelings aren't facts. Of course, those feelings come through often through through a a, a whole plethora of biases. Um, but yeah, the, the, you know the the most get away from the superlative there. But the, those people that are perhaps self aware, right, are those people that are also aware of the biases that they harbor. Uh, and they can pull back from those things. Bin Laden raves a classic example. You know, I, for the first 10 years of Afghanistan, I called this uh, tall man, white robe syndrome. Whenever we saw a guy who was tall with white robes on, they would drop a bomb. It must be Bin Laden. You know, that's, you're confirming a bias. Tall guy, white robes must be Bin Laden. Of course, we, it wasn't Bin Laden. We killed scores of innocent people doing stuff like that. So when I was read in again to the, you know, the, the final bin Laden raid, you know, I was skeptical. I went up to uh, one of the young women who was uh, uh, on the, uh, the, the team of analysts that actually found bin Laden. And I said, okay, here we go again. What have you done to disconfirm that this has been Laden? And I thought I would stump her, right? Here's the old wise seal is going to stump the young uh, uh, intelligence analysts, and she like comes out with a laundry list of things that they had done to disconfirm. And that was the first time I'd seen somebody, uh, a team, aware of their biases, uh, then you know try and get around that by actively setting out to disconfirm that this was Bin Laden, and they were unable to do so. Wow. Uh, yeah. So that's a you know great story of bias, but you know, gosh, there's 150 study biases these days. You know, 
Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky are you know, probably still two favorites of mine. There's others out there, the Ariellis of the world, Jonathan Haidt, uh, all these people that that um, introduce us to our biases. And you know, these are things that uh, they're they're uh, they're push. You know, we we don't have to think about something. You hear a noise at night. Well, we are, you know, we've evolved to think that noise is something dangerous, right? If, you know, it's, when we were cavemen, you heard that noise at night, uh, you, you thought it was a saber-toothed tiger and you took precautions, right? If you, if it turns out it was a, fun, a fuzzy bunny, well, no harm, no foul, right? But if it turns out that you assume it's a fuzzy bunny, but then it's a saber-toothed tiger, that's a bias, right? You're, you're a goner. Well, those people have not, those people that, that, that assumed it was a, a fuzzy bunny and it turned out to be a saber toothed tiger, they're not here. They didn't pass their genes on to us. We are people who inherited uh, a negativity bias. So we see, we are very sensitive to negative information. Served us well back then, doesn't serve us so well today, right? Negative information spreads quickly, much faster than the truth. There's that old saying, right? That a lie is halfway around the world before the truth ever gets in the door. Um, so, you know, those are examples of where biases do not serve us well, uh, misinformation, disinformation, prey off of a bias like that, uh, and then it holds us back, you know? So again, you get a group of people who together who can be safe together. Well, then they can start to explore some of those biases together, some of those assumptions together, some of their beliefs together, and they can poke holes in them. And what that allows them to do is evolve or adapt or improve all those things, you know? So yeah, bias is powerful. So Dave, uh, in listening to this last exchange, I, I can't help but think of, and I know it's one of your favorite books, Thinking Fast and Slow. Yeah. Um, what else do you recommend that people should be reading? And I know to your point earlier, you can't force people, but you could certainly give them opportunities. What else should they be reading? What are you reading? You know, these days I am I am stuck in the complex systems world um, and I read everything complex systems. I would have said, you know, 10 years ago, I was primarily a fiction guy, you know, and anything Hemingway, I would I would read anything Faulkner, uh, some John Lecrae. You got to throw that in there for entertainment, right? Some spy novels and stuff like that. Um, uh, because I tell my kids, though, I don't care what you read, just read. Just read, you know, uh, expand your horizons and, and whatever makes you a little bit uncomfortable, go read that, you know, mm. um, certainly 400 pages of Daniel Kahneman there thinking fast and slow is going to make you a little bit uncomfortable taking a page at a time, um, stuff like that. You know, those things that Jonathan Haidt does the same thing. Uh, you know, some of these, some of these authors or writers or scientists who've taken to the pen will challenge your assumptions and will make you uncomfortable. That's the stuff you should be reading, whatever that is. If you want to read a decent book as in kind of an intro on complex system science teacher of mine, um, well, there's Melanie Mitchell, great book out there. It's, it's uh, you know, she talks about complexity. She makes it um, approachable, I guess. It's not something that's going to bedazzle you with all the physics and stuff like that. Uh, and you get to learn about, hey, your family is a complex system. Well, how can I set the conditions so that my family can improve? Um, so that's, that's a good book on complex systems that, that won't, that won't crush your soul. Um, <laughs> yeah. Thoreau, go read it, you know, uh, particularly for young men and women. I, I think you should read Thoreau and, and get a little touch of that, um, uh, you know, adventurism in you. So in, uh, Machiavelli's The Prince, 
he posed the question, uh, is it better to be loved or feared? Now, I, I, I know what Machiavelli said. What, what would you say? Well, a couple of things here. You can take the complex systems approach and say it's a both and, right? You don't have to be one or the other, but uh, uh, you can also take the Zen approach and and uh, knock Machiavelli out and not answer the question, you know? Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, I would, obviously for me is I, I have no need to be feared. Um, it just doesn't, it doesn't appeal to me, uh, you know, help my damn dogs aren't even afraid of me. So, uh, you know, I, that's my own particular bias right there. It is much better to be loved than feared. Does that mean that people aren't going to take advantage of you? They certainly are. Uh, and instead of being surprised by that, we've come almost full circle here, prepared, prepare to be surprised. That's just how it's going to go. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think again, rigid hierarchies, military in particular, Western militaries, um, tend to thrive off of that fear that uh, formal power and formal authority brings with it. And we can look at the scoreboard. Uh, that doesn't work well from Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia, Yemen. I can keep on going here. Uh, you know, that kind of mindset just doesn't work well for you. Not at all. And, you know, uh, Sun Tzu said a similar thing, right? He's, he lines up the concubines. How are you going to turn these people into a, an army? How would you turn these concubines into an army? He was presented with that question. Uh, he lines them up and two of the concubines uh, giggle and he chops their heads off, uh, instilling fear in the rest of them. And man, they line up. Lining up is great like that sometimes, you know, if we all want to line up and get the vaccine or get a, a wear mask, you know, to, uh, in that regard. But that kind of fear mongering doesn't work well. You know, uh, it, it doesn't it might work. But that doesn't necessarily mean we should do it. There are better ways to do that, I think, and, uh, and to free us up. You know, the, the fear keeps us from reaching that potential. And I'm just not a fan of it. So I, I think that was one of the best answers we've gotten yeah. so far. What, what, what episode is this? The last 14 or something? But um, no, you, you were pretty right on. And um, Machiavelli said that you have to be both. Yeah. Um, but but um, your answer, I think, was better. I don't know if you guys heard it a minute ago before I, I oh, went we on. Did. You, we did. We did. My house was on fire. <laughs> so it's the fire. The, the fire is out. Now. Well, I was just laughing that you're going to miss dinner then. So, OK, you know, I think dinner. I think dinner just went up in smoke. <laughs> so, Dave, I have one final question. Lay it on and- me. And we sort of started, well, when we heard your story, you started off in, uh, in Pennsylvania. Yep. You worked your way up there as a bus boy. You made your way. Well, first you were going to go into the medical field, but then you decided, hey, I want to be a little bit more adventurous. And you went into the Navy for, or just went into the Navy for 25 years. And of course, now you're running your own business and, uh, and just listening to you, it's just exceptional what you're doing. But if you, if there's one thing you wish you would have known back when you, prior to being a busboy, with all the experiences you've had today, what would that have been? Wow. That could have changed your, would it have changed your life in a different arc? Would you have looked for, for some, some insight like that? 
One thing that I wish I had known. Um, I can think of a lot of things I wish I'd have known in hindsight, right? But the one thing that stands out the most, I would say, you know, for us, it, you know, I see this in, in organizations all the time, and, and that is that it's, it's okay to fail and it's okay to talk about it. You know, uh, that is, makes wow. us so uncomfortable, yet there's so much you can glean from that and so many places you can go from that ability to, to, to embrace that kind of discomfort. You know, you, you walk through that doorway. I mean, we just talk about you know, one side of the doorway, it's all bright and sunny, right? There's pink elephants and, you know, purple unicorns and all that stuff. And everything is known and everything is certain and everything is comfortable. On the other side of that doorway, it's, you know, it's, everything is unknown. It's uncomfortable. It's uncertain. It's a little bit gloomy. But that's the place you got to go. Um, and I wish I had known that, you know, just that it, 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 I wish if you could program humans, that's the one program that they understand uh, coming right out of the womb. Hey, it's OK to go into that space. that's a little bit uncomfortable because there's a lot you can learn there. And there's all kinds of different things you, that, that puts you on just a, an entirely different trajectory uh, in terms of where you're going to go in this world. You know, that's mine. Well, thank you and, for and, that. Yeah. And the truth is, everyone was in that space or will be in that space someday. Yeah. So they can really relate to that. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, man. Hey, David, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciated the conversation. Uh, to be honest, I could talk with you all night, if not all week. So thank you for spending an hour with us. My pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. Truly. That was fun. Okay. Well, you have a good night. Uh, I'm going to say goodbye to Pete so he can go grab his burnt <laughs> dinner. I've got to put the fire out. All right. All right. Thank you, sir. You Cheers, be safe. We'll talk, we'll talk again soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye, Dave. Dave. You, you, you know, I, um, that he was outstanding. And, and if you notice that there's a, it, with a lot of our our people that we've brought on, there's a there's a lot of repetition here, um, in a good way. Yeah. It, it's more of a confirmation or, or or a reinforcement rather than repetition. Is probably has a negative connotation. It's reinforcement and and confirmation of of, of certain principles. Like this last discussion we had on. Um, you know, it's okay to say, I, I, I messed this up. I, I was wrong. I failed. Um, and we learn from that. And um, I, I think other people appreciate that because they see themselves as having been there. Or if not, they will see themselves as having been there. We, none of us escape, escape that. You're not kidding. <clears throat> I think it also confirms we have some really good guests coming on the show, Pete. We do. We have great people. And yes. this was a outstanding outstanding hey pete well you know what before we go i just want to remind our listeners and our viewers depending on how you're picking us up whether it's through youtube or whether it's on any of the uh the podcast streaming services is please check out our website the uh, www.rffactor.com pete and i are spending a lot of time putting a lot of content on there for you to uh enjoy so please check that out and uh, please register for it as well. And we also have a sub stack that we uh, we're running as well. And one thing that's nice about that is 
it's coming out. It, it's just been about almost every two weeks. We, we sort of send out a RF factor roll up that has all our content that we've been producing. So um, at least you're getting that as well. So please uh, go visit www.rffactor.com. Pete, go enjoy your meal if it's uh, still edible. Yeah, I'm going to go to McDonald's, I think. <laughs> Good stuff. <laughs> All right, uh, later. Be safe. Bye.